you're listening to Death of the Reader, Flex here, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we wanted to bring you the extended version of our discussion with Vasim Khan during his novel, The Dying Day. We have spoilers for part two, which is up to chapter 31 during this discussion, and I'll let you know towards the end when we jump into spoilers for part three, but this was a really fascinating discussion, and if you love yourself historical crime fiction, it's a fantastic book to pick up as well. Let's jump into it. This is Death of the Reader. If this is your first run-in with the show, uh, and Vasim Khan here is the author of the Baby Ganesh Agency series, the Malabar House series, which The Dying Day is book two of, host of the Red Hot Chili Writers podcast, and soon-to-be editor of The Perfect Crime Collection out later this year, which we'll get to in a moment. Vasim, it's lovely to have you back. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Well, gentlemen, it's it's lovely to be back, and I don't think even my, my late mother ever described me as illustrious, so I'll, I'll take that. That's a big word, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. So The Perfect Crime has an astonishing lineup of crime writers, 22 authors from Lagos to Mexico City, Australia to the Caribbean, Toronto to Los Angeles, Darjeeling to rural New Zealand, London to New York. I've heard whisperings that a lot of these collections come together because of people being owed favors behind the scenes. Should we add crime fiction power broker to your CV? How did that come together? <laughs> well, look, to be absolutely honest with you, so my co-editor, Maxim Jakubowski, he had this idea a few years ago, and he approached me to, to find out what I thought about it. And I think, look, I, I'm not one of these people, as we, as we spoke last, I'm not one of these people who stands on a soapbox and bangs on about diversity in, in the arts, et cetera, et cetera. I think that most people who are aware of what's been happening in the world over the last 10 years knows that this is a movement that, that's spreading and, and has merit. And there are reasons. There are unconscious or conscious barriers to, these, uh, to, to, to the arts for, for, for people from various communities. And everybody, hopefully, is putting their best foot forward. And the crime fiction community has been very welcoming to me personally, as someone who came in as an outsider. Um, it is very, very dominated by white middle-class people. And that's that's a historical thing. I'm not having to go at anyone about it. But we felt, Maxim and I, that it was the right time because so many crime writers of color across the world, even in your own fair, fair isles, uh, had come to prominence over this last decade or so, it was about the right time to get some of these voices into a, an anthology. Yeah. I mean, looking at the past works of a lot of the authors in the collection, uh, there, there is a real push for diversity of voices uh, and some incredible stories that do so. Um, other than the satisfaction of a, of a good yarn to seem, uh, is there one thing, a, a lesson or maybe a concept that you hope readers take away from the collection? Well, look, the first requirement that that I set out when we were talking about this with the publishers, HarperCollins, was that this cannot be a, a chance for people to, uh, to have a go at anyone. And neither do we want this to become sort, some sort of great, nauseous attempt by any of the writers involved to go on and on endlessly about, about issues around diversity. So instead, we gave them a sim- simple brief. Write the crime story that you want to write. It, can, it just has to showcase your talent as a crime writer. And I think that is the overriding, uh, just looking through all of those stories, the overriding. I mean, when readers, uh, if readers uh, decide to read this book, what they'll find, hopefully, is a set of stories that uh, not only cover lots of different cultures and, and communities from across the world, but hopefully uh, stories that's, uh, that appeal to them as crime readers. And they won't like every single one because, you know, when you have an anthology, no one likes every single story in an anthology. 
Uh, as long as they, they like my one. That's the important thing. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> the only reason I did it. Yeah, well, I mean, you've titled it The Perfect Crime and the classic mystery fan inside of me like yearns for a good challenge there. Are there any twists that caught you off guard the first time you got to read the stories that were sent in? Uh, look, if I if I start mentioning individuals, I'll probably get a barrage <laughs> of letters from their lawyers because some of these, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, living legend Walter Mosley, the, the, the you know the creator of Easy Roll- Rollings, which later turned into a, a great Denzel movie. They've all been wonderful. They've all put their hands in their pockets, and when we ask them and, and come up with something, because let's be honest, it's um, to get a collection of writers of such prominence uh, and new writers who are gaining prominence together in one collection. The only way that you can do that is certainly not because of my charming personality. It's <laughs> silly self short. <laughs> it's because they felt that there was some merit and they wanted to be involved with what I hope will be a seminal, seminal collection. So there are some great twists and turns in amongst those stories. Yeah, well, let's jump into the Malabar House series. We're still kind of like midway through. I've read the whole thing. Herds is currently up to chapter 31 of The Dying Day. It's true. And I have a third to go. Yeah, the mm. first thing I wanted to talk about is Persis because I think she's a really wonderful character for exploring the newly independent India because she's at once fiercely principled, capable, but also sometimes a little blind for the consequences of her actions. Why was it important for Persis to share so many of the faults of the nation while struggling against them? Well, um, so Persis is, uh, for those of your listeners who, who don't know, she is India's first female police detective, the first woman to qualify uh, for the detective's exams and to join the police service. And she's based at a small station, Malabar House in Bombay, as it was then known. And this is where all the misfits and rejects are sent. And the reason she's sent there is not because of incompetence like her her colleagues there. Uh, She's sent there because she's a woman and nobody wants to work with her. And this automatically puts a chip on her shoulder, obviously. She also, as you've hinted, has this personality where she's uh, she's lost her mother at a young age. She's been raised by her father. They live above a bookshop. And he's he's had this chip on his shoulder about the British for a start. Mm. uh, Because he holds them responsible for the death of his wife, even though that wasn't technically the case. Uh, and she's grown up in this environment where India for two decades, at least while well, she's been, been growing to the age of what, 27 she is now in this, in this book, has been fighting this quit, the Quit India movement, trying to get the British to leave, leave the country. So all of that's left a, left a mark on her. And she wants to get away from the whole demure Indian housewife doing what she's told. Although I have to be honest, I've never met such, a, such an Indian character. <laughs> My, my my missus is definitely not demure. Um, as I was saying to you, there's a, there's some law, there's some guys fixing a washing machine downstairs, and I can hear her shouting at them right now, <laughs> as she should. <laughs> so so Persis is very much uh, an individual. She's very much someone who's not perfect. Her social skills sometimes leave something to be desired, uh, and largely it's because she's so wrapped up in this idea of making progress in a man's world knowing that right from the first day that she's entered the force, most of the people there are set against her, uh, that she is, as you rightly say, sometimes blind to her own faults. Now, I, I did want to jump into the the MacGuffin of the story here, the uh, the Divine Commedia. Um, now, I'm a little shaky on this one, but as I understand it, the origin story for how this book ended up in the in the Azex Society's hand is a little, a little hazy in real life. Um, But you pose a version of events in the novel regarding its carrier fleeing an uprising um, without it. Did my research go awry? Was there a particular reason you chose to sort of invent a bit of history there? You say invent a bit of history, but the fact is that there is this incredibly old copy of the Da Vinci Code. And it it, it resides in a 
uh, a building called the, the Asiatic Society of Bombay. It was originally the Royal Asi- Asiatic Society of Great Britain. It's been around for about 200 years now. And at the time mm. of this book, in, in 1950, uh, this copy of the Da Vinci Code rests there. And, and this is a great, I mean, I've actually visited. <laughs> Sorry, Vasim. I, I enjoyed the slip up there where you said the copy of the mm. Da Vinci Code. Yeah, the Da Vinci there. Code, the, the Asiatic Society. <laughs> that seems right to me. Dan Brown's getting so ahead of himself. <laughs> I, can, I can explain that slip. I, I guess we'll talk about that yeah, yeah. a little bit later on. So um, all will be forgiven, listeners, dear listeners, <laughs> when, uh, when, when we get to that. Uh, but... Um, uh, I visited the, the Asiatic Society when I lived in in Bombay, and it's this treasure trove of fantastic ancient artifacts. You know, you've got a Shakespeare first folio dated from the 1600s there. You've got a copy of uh, A Voyage Around the World by, by James Cook. Uh, and all of these kind of things are, 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 are there. But the Indians themselves, honestly speaking, around the time of partition, they weren't very preoccupied with these artifacts. Uh, it was the British who collected uh, this storehouse of 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 treasures and the divin and the there was again do it again there <laughs> and the divine comedy was the one that really fascinated me and uh, yes it has been dated to a long time ago and then when you say that i've invented the way that it's managed to end up there yeah uh, you're yeah. right to a certain extent my research suggested that it had it had ended up there by virtue of a scotsman named mm. mon stuart elphinston and he was a former governor of bombay and I, I can't remember the exact route that it found, uh, that it uh, used to find its way to Bombay. But once it was there, it has since been such an enormous treasure that the Indian and Italian governments have basically almost come to blows over it. The Italians want it back. Mussolini once offered a million dollars for it back in the mm. 1930s, and the Indian government refused. And so for me as a crime writer, I thought, you know, you've got this incredibly valuable valuable item how can we um how can we construct some murders and, and things around that uh, to try and make it an interesting plot for a novel i mean i really loved uh, aaron lockhart as a character in that context like she kind of plays in some ways the role of the british there where she's there for the americans uh because they want to take the copy out of uh, out of india because they're like oh india can't handle it for themselves and they're like incredibly patronizing view and i was saying to herds uh like while we were preparing for this episode, and we might discuss it a bit later on as well, how just like authentic to the Smithsonian Museum that was to me, because having visited that museum, it's like kind of bizarre how self-aggrandizing some of the presentations they have are there. Like um, there are definitely people that do fantastic work, but it's presented in this very nationalistic light that I can totally see in Aaron Lockhart as a character. <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going to possibly uh, row back a little bit on that. Um, uh-huh. I never, I never intended her to, to seem so predatory. Um, it's interesting you know, how, how, how you guys read that. And, and you, she's a little scary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I love museums. Um, you know, and the British Museum is no less guilty than the Smith- Smithsonian, and it's uh, near where I work. And it's uh, whenever I, I I I need some time to think, I just go for a little potter around the the British Museum. But when you look at some of the artifacts there, so many of them have been mired in controversy because the countries from which they originate have have wanted them back, and and why why wouldn't they? Uh, but these are great cultural treasures, and the argument will g- carry on forever as to who who they truly uh, belong to or who they should at this moment of time belong mm. to so that they can be showcased to the widest range of people. So I'm not going to be so hard on Erin and, and the Smith. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, 
as as Erin herself kind of says in the story, there's always a bit of a good intention behind it all. It's just that it's like gross. there's so many layers. <laughs> yeah. There's so many layers to the issue to unpack there that's like, you know, Erin is only one facet of it and it's just fascinating to me like as as I guess a fan of the Smithsonian, I really like the museum. Uh, kind of seeing her portrayal in the book and just going like, oh yeah, that is that is a little bit how the Smithsonian is, huh? Well, at that note of colonialism, I'm, I'm sure that uh, your listeners in Australia, you, you've been discussing this to death over the last couple of decades as well. I mean, yeah, we're recording this on Australia Day here, which has been my Very appropriate. controversy right. about Invasion Day. <laughs> should I be should I be upstanding? Should I be, be saluting or, or blowing a trumpet? Uh, no, or no, I, completely normal behavior. Uh, we're pretty casual about the whole thing. We'll deal um, with that another time. I mean, that's what I do every morning anyway when I wake up. <laughs> of course, of course. It's part of the British culture. Salute the Queen, of course. Yeah, I guess speaking of interesting uh, set piece characters to the novel, I wanted to talk a little bit about Seth, the commanding officer at Malabar House. He's a character that's so often an obstacle for Persis, but a lot of the time it also feels like he kind of doesn't want to be. He's only there because he's been, as you say, put out to the pasture before the glue factory by the force. But at the same time, he's there because he was a part of the colonial system. How do you juggle putting characters with a lot of that kind of contextual nuance into the story without bogging things down? And I suppose, how do you resist the urge to take them from side characters to main characters? Well, as your listeners will know, as, as avid crime readers, no protagonist, no lead detective or, or, or whatever it happens to be, a journalist, a crusading lawyer, uh, they, they can't operate in a vacuum. And it's that supporting cast that sometimes not only generates interest for the reader, but they act as sounding boards for your lead character. They, they, they pop in at the correct times to perhaps offer them a helping hand when it's needed. And the role of Rosh and Seth, who is uh, Persis's commanding officer, is to not only do that, that sort of thing and to act as a, both an antagonist for her to sometimes goad her into doing things or to try and stop her from doing things so that then she can transgress those boundaries and make things interesting for us. But he's also very emblematic of many Indians who operated during the time of the Raj within mm. the uh, w- within the control or, or, or the purview of the British and tried to do the, the jobs that they were handed, whether it was in the police service or political structures or the legendary Indian civil service. And they just did their jobs. But after partition, after independence, Suddenly, some of them were tarred because they, they, people felt that perhaps they'd cozied up to the British a little too much. They, they'd pursued their duties with a little too much zeal during that British time. And Seth is one of the unfortunate ones who have, uh, who have suffered because of this. And that's why he was a very intelligent and, and uh, officer, rising star in the Bombay force. But now he's been relegated to Malabar House and he's become a bit of a drunk, as one does. I mean, what else are you going to do in post-colonial India, of course? Now, speaking of, of side characters, uh, one thing that you have been, uh, let's say, threatening to explore the whole way through the series is Persis' romantic side. She's resistant to it both because she's uh, quite an awkward character and because she'd immediately get the boot if she got married off the force. Now, does the franchise hinge on Persis resigning herself to eternal awkwardness or do you have a, a perhaps a path in mind to get the best of both worlds? Well, you guys are probably too young to remember a terrific show that the show that made Bruce Willis famous, uh, Moonlighting. <laughs> now, that show, uh, some of your listeners might remember it. It uh, it was pre- it, it was successful because of the whole will they, won't they between Bruce Willis and Sybil Shepherd, which they managed to 
to, to carry on for God knows how many series. And, and many crime series, uh, they operate with a similar kind of principle. There's, there's often a pair of leads and there is this romantic tension between them. And in my case, it's, it's between Persis and Archie Blackfinch, who's an mm-hmm. Englishman, he's a white chap, and he's in Bombay to help the, the Bombay police force set up a forensic science lab. Uh, he's, he's got his own set of idi- idiosyncrasies, and the pair of them initially start off antagonistic, as all good romantic encounters should do, uh, but then we realise that there is this mutual respect and attraction developing over the course of the series. Um, and as far as I'm concerned, the longer I can keep that tension running without resolving it for the reader, uh, the better, uh, because there's nothing worse than than having all of your questions answered, really. I mean, theoretically, you keep it going until the end of time. Uh, <laughs> episode 100, you know, in the the Persis. It's true. You have really crammed both books <laughs> into the first first few days of 1950. It's yeah, true. There's plenty of more you days left on a calendar. You could have one book every day, practically. You could have 365 days worth of books in one year. <laughs> I'm just saying the opportunity is it's endless. I'd capitalize. Well, yeah, the thing I wanted to mention is that Archie took a real kind of backseat in this book compared to Midnight at Malibu House, instead focusing more on like the dysfunctionality of her working with Fernandez after his previous betrayal. Was it easier for you to write a working Sherlock and Watson or did the chaos of Fernandez and Persis make the other pairing a bit more fun? Well, I just don't like Archie. <laughs> no, really? It, uh, no, I, I, I mean, look. Um, Curious. When you have a cast of characters, if you try and shoehorn a lot of stage time in for every single one of them in every episode of your series, uh, it becomes quite boring for the reader uh, because you have to find things for them to do. We can't just have Archie coming along and taking up loads of chapters where he doesn't do anything. And if there isn't something credible for him to be doing within the course of that investigation, then I'm afraid the spotlight has to return to the lead character. And that's person. That's so fascinating. It's really interesting too, because I was reading a lot of reviews of the books as I love doing after I finish any book, just to, you know, sit there and clown on the people who leave unreasonably bad reviews. It's a little, little personal hobby of mine. <laughs> that's usually my wife. <laughs> But one thing that I found really fascinating is how many people said that they felt Archie, especially in the first book, was a really authentic portrayal of someone with perhaps autism and OCD. You know, what was the like, I guess, process for you making sure that character was represented in a sensitive but also, you know, just ordinary way? Well, I can see some of your listeners rolling their eyes already because, I mean, people on the spectrum are not rare in crime fiction. And usually because it's often equated with uh, either intelligence or a fastidiousness that that serves you well when you're investigating uh, small details and clues or just a a monomania that sometimes is very necessary for a good investigator. Now, I haven't used used the word autism or anything about the spectrum. Uh, I've hinted at the fact that that young Archie is... um, is possibly one of these people who who operates in a in a very specific, but at the same mm. time, as we see both in in this book and the third one that that comes out shortly, um, he's not he's not he's not the kind of person that when you initially you, you talk about people on the spectrum that suddenly people get this image wrongly. I should say uh, everyone on that spectrum is it, it, it has no social skills and it, and is you know a particular way. He's 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 somewhere on somewhere where, you know, there are times when he makes Persis laugh. There are times when he he makes her feel really warm and good about herself. Uh, so he's not completely uh, unself aware of himself mm. and his limitations. 
Uh, and at heart, he's a he's a good chap. Yeah. I mean, that, that was particularly why I chose the word ordinary there, because that's like the key thing that I feel particularly classic crime fiction, as you kind of allude to there, gets wrong, is they're like, ah, oh, yes, it's one extreme or the other. But Archie was just so regular in a way that was, I think really struck a good note with a lot of the readers that I've seen review it that way. I mean, what I like, I like that he is sort of, I mean, ostracized might be the right word. Like Persis's family doesn't want him getting with her that's just that's just how it is and it's not because of his neurodiversiveness uh it's because he's an englishman right like persis continually is saying yeah there's this guy that i kind of like and i kind of don't and he's clumsy that's the way that she describes him and so that kind of is one of his uh defining qualities to her but the reason why people don't approve of him is not because of his 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 mental difference or the fact that he is clumsy it's because of his social status um and and of course playing into the the whole India Britain relationship there that's that's a huge part of it <laughs> you know i like that a lot you you're absolutely right um yeah. you know india has just become in 1950 uh, the world's largest democracy there's about 300 million indians it's a republic and it has these am- amazing ideals but the truth is that you know prejudice is run deep and for an indian woman to be openly dating a white man yes, yes. especially an englishman uh that's going to be a complete no no and certainly it's a no no as far as persis is concerned because as you hinted earlier the bombay police service doesn't allow married women or the indian police service didn't allow married women to carry on serving yeah. so if they got married they'd have to leave the service and certainly that's not in persis's plans the other thing is that indians are by nature rule breakers i mean this was the real reason uh that uh, that that gandhi initiated the revolution it wasn't because of all the injustices <laughs> it was the fact that he got fed up with all of the rules the british had created through the indian civil service and you know the, the he was asked to fill out a form in triplicate one too many times and he said by god so i'm not having this anymore i'm going to kick the british out mm-hmm. but there are some rules that even this nation of rule breakers finds very very difficult to break and in that time just after partition after independence a, a white man and a and an indian woman it's not that it didn't happen it was just incredibly difficult, difficult. yeah I mean maybe if he was half Indian half English maybe there'd be a chance but you know how it stands actually, actually that would have been worse because the oh, Ang- oh yeah I mean come on you read murder in old Bombay Ben where have you been <laughs> oh it's, no precisely, I, hold precisely. on now I, did you not read how that book ended flex come on now two points to Felix yes you're absolutely right the Anglo Indians as they were known were reviled two points uh, especially post independence but see have you read murder in old Bombay I'm sorry I don't normally call out authors <laughs> guests on the show go read <laughs> Yeah, but the whole Nef point Marches, of the end of Murder, Murder in Old Bombay, Bombay, the whole point of the end of Murder in Old Bombay that Nev March said to us herself Terrible. was that she was trying to give the community a kick in the backside for not being uh-huh. that way. Okay, good, great. I'm glad that this is. I'm glad that this is the way we're taking the tr- this. The truth is that the Anglo Indians were neither they were neither white enough to be to welcome to to Britain uh, as 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 you know, Eng- pucker English people. uh and neither were they indian enough to to retain good relations with the indian who had fought for independence who always thought of them as as slightly treacherous unfairly again i should say uh but that was the impression that uh, the other indian the rest of the indian population had of them you see this is what happens when i try and make a cute reference to a previous episode we've done <laughs> I get clowned on. This is why I just shouldn't just shouldn't make references to anything right. we've done on previously on the show. Anyway, anyway. can we? <laughs> I like this phrase, clowned on. 
It sounds like something we should say about Boris Johnson. Oh, I mean, we do. We do. It's 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 probably just a bit too internet of parlance to have quite reached you yet, Basim. Yeah, I definitely shouldn't be saying it. It's very unprofessional. I'm not I'm not down with the kids, obviously. No, I mean neither am I at this point. I was I was clowned on to introduce me to that phrase. <laughs> All right. Shall we shall we dive into something a bit more of a, a an expert on please, being the please. individual who is going through this book, not having finished it. Now uh, Vasim, you mentioned the, the last time we spoke that there were many refinements that you had to make uh, to get the riddles in the dying day right, uh, just right even. Uh, and we really enjoyed the lessons about Indian history that was smattered throughout. Um, how did you test the riddles to make sure that progression of, of difficulty uh, was satisfying for someone putting in an effort to solve them, Vasim? Uh, well, I banged my head against the wall quite a lot. That's a good one. <laughs> That's imagine. a good start. Uh, look, you—you, you, I, I made a slip up earlier where I called the uh, the Divine Comedy the Da Vinci Code. Um, mm-hmm. So I, you know, I'm, I freely admit that that was uh, uh, an inspiration for me. Now I know that uh, the Da Vinci Code is not everyone's cup of tea. I personally quite enjoyed the books when they came out. The, uh, the books featuring Robert Langdon, the symbologist. Mm-hmm. Of course, they've been incredibly successful around the world. So you know, they're they're a foundation stone of modern crime fiction thrillers. Uh, and I wanted to do something similar, but set it in this this Indian context. So for me, I would continually go back and reference them, and see, you know, what did Dan uh, Dan Brown do with his riddles that made them so effective that kept me turning the pages when I originally read the Da Vinci Code. And the answer for me was was twofold. Firstly, the damn things had to rhyme, which really caused me a lot of angst. It's it's you know it's not super difficult to create a riddle. It's quite difficult to make one that that rhymes and also serves your purpose. And that purpose was the second element. So each of the riddles had to point to real things in Bombay so that Perseus could follow them around. So I couldn't just make up institutions or artifacts that had never or were not at all remotely possible to have been in Bombay. So that was a really difficult thing trying to find places for her to go and things for her to do that could then be put into riddle form and then to rhyme the damn things, which nearly caused me to blow my brains out. But- well, the second riddle is, is the one that I really wanted to hide, the one with the, the letters on the thigh of John Healy, which is an insane puzzle, by the way. I thoroughly enjoyed solving that one. Oh, my goodness, yes. Uh, we have to ask <laughs> about the commas. Yes, that's what I wanted to ask about. That's where I'm leading into so here's the thing. This this is why I'm interested in the progression of difficulty here because the way that I tried to solve it, right, uh, I used just the regular, what was it, the, the revised King James Version of the Bible, whatever it was, it's just the name of the Bible in the book. I tried to use that to solve it and I got the first two words fine and the third word came out, Munsterern. And then of course, when I got to the fifth word, it was gobbledygook. And uh, the way that I kind of imagine it in my mind, you've set up, each of the uh, the words to be solved in such a way that it gets more difficult. You need to have a, a more thorough kind of understanding of like which book you need and how to apply the characters and that sort of thing. Is, is that something that you thought about when you were putting the riddle together? Because I found that you could very easily actually get the third word to work if you just remove some commas. But the fifth word, you use characters from a lot later on in the verse that was, that was being used to solve the riddle. So it was impossible to, to kind of, fiddle with the the punctuation, try and solve it without actually having the black letter version of the Bible. Do you understand what I'm saying? I want to know how intentional that was and how much time you put into that. I'm very curious. Okay, well, I've put an enormous amount of time into it. I and <laughs> I'll be absolutely honest with you. I'm not sure about 
where the commas are. It's been a very long time since I did that. So the, the thing the thing that Herds and I both noticed, right, is that for the the last two words, uh, t- the two longer words in that riddle, the mm. first letter is like right at the start of the chapter. Yes. And then there's like a gap of something like 140 characters, which means that the more different your version is, the further the off you get. Yeah. And I looked at that and I went, oh, that's really interesting. I wonder why Vasim Khan did that. But I happened to use the yes. right version. So I just got the right one. Herds ended up with. What point to Felix? Yeah. Herds, Herds ended up with complete garbage. Well, hold on now. The, the The point is that the third word was mostly fine. The fifth word was garbage, and that yeah. was very interesting. And when I say he 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 actually figured out what the problem was and managed to I correct did. himself, which I'm honestly more impressed. Stop giving points to Felix. Stop giving it to him. He's he's read the whole thing. He's the ex. I'm the one solving it. It's garbage. I have to be honest though. I, I am impressed that uh, that you that you managed to solve that one because that Thank is a you. very puzzle. And, Do I and get points? You get get five. I've already given you your two points for it on this episode. (laughs) If you actually solve that without getting to the answer, uh, and and the same goes to any of your listeners who read the book, uh, and especially if you're seasoned crime readers, you might have some inkling of how to solve it. But if you do solve it, I will be very, very impressed. Yeah, I I should say, Hertz has one riddle left to go in the book, but I have been so impressed with how he's managed to go through and solve all of these. These riddles annihilated me. I took like a week or more to solve each of them. Herds comes around and he's like, oh yeah, I finished it by the end of the page. (laughs) (laughs) Hold on, I said two hours, two hours for the second riddle. In my defense, um, I used a particular version. No, this isn't in your defense. This is in your compliment. This was a genius part of the riddle. I love it. It was great. Well, in the sense that uh, if somebody uses the wrong version of the King's (laughs) Bible, they're going to get it wrong. Uh, But I had two editors check it through and they also... Double check that it was it was correct. Mm. So yeah. hopefully, if people write the, use the right version. Yes, they will also- yes. Well, let's put it this way: there's there's like a hundred different versions of the old Bible, and the fact that it I, I assume only works with the black lettered version of the New King James version of the Bible is pretty impressive because of just how many versions there are, and it, like it's- there could be a fl- there could be one that still works. We don't know about it, you know. Well, I'm a huge fan of history. I'm a huge history buff, and mm. just going through the history of the Bible for for a book that is you know, the biggest selling book of all time, probably, for, for, for so few of us to know its actual history and how it came about. Uh, I found that illuminating. And I, and I, I think I did a, a, a bit of a dump uh, on a page within the, within just, just to create some context around, around it. Uh, and I found that mm. fascinating. All righty. Well, it, is, it has been a pleasure, uh, Vasim, speaking with you again about uh, your incredible work, The Dying Day and Midnight in Malabar House. It's been an absolute treat. And thank you once again for joining us. Gentlemen, it's been absolutely wonderful to be back. Uh, two things I will end with. Firstly, mm. we shall never mention cricket or the ashes ever again. Please don't. I don't know what you're talking about. Don't do it. And secondly, can I tell you my favorite uh, favorite Novak Djokovic joke? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Why, why did Novak have to pay for his flight to Australia with a MasterCard? Don't know. Because his visa went cancelled. Uh, <laughs> oh, oh, God. <laughs> All right. And that is where we're going to wrap up the part two discussion and jump into full spoilers all the way to the end of the book. Hope you've had the chance to read it before continuing, but if not, there's still some fascinating topics to cover anyway. While you're listening to this, there are links to find out more about the book and Devasim's website, so go check those out as well. Let's carry on. 
I wanted to ask about Neve Forrester because she really got the cold shoulder by several characters. I really love the moment where the uh, the Greek scholar corrects her translation. That was classic. Uh, but it also, in some senses, the story. She's got the uh, too obvious to be the culprit archetype in a lot of ways, but gets consigned to a glum looking photograph in the Chronicle newspaper at the end rather than the redemption that that archetype often gets. Why did you give the ever-obnoxious journalist Shana the last laugh in that situation? Well, I, 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 can't, I can't say that it was a conscious decision. I mean, Neve Forrester is an intriguing character. So she's one of these Brits uh, who are known as stayers-on. So they're Brits who have spent so much time in India that even when independence swung around, they couldn't imagine themselves going back to a life in, in the home counties or, or up in, back in the highlands of Scotland, for instance. So for her, there was never any question of going anywhere else. However, she is also from an era where Brit, the Brits were top dogs. And she has that sense of people, you know, snapping too when she says something or when she orders them to do something. Uh, and I think that that makes her slightly unlikable to some, but understandable to others, because that's all she's ever known. When you're used to... Uh, she's she's an older woman now, so if you're used to like five, six decades of of being born to command, being born to rule, and you're in charge of everything and people run when you snap your fingers, uh, it's very difficult to let go of that just because someone tells you that the, that the damn natives are now independent. Um, and so I guess maybe that's a subconscious reason why Channa, who is, yes, as you rightly say, an obnoxious journalist, but he's an Indian nonetheless, uh, uh, who maybe perhaps that's why I gave him the the last laugh, as you put it. Yeah, well, I, I guess the other thing about the ending that I wanted to ask is that we get kind of this like a little almost Indiana Jones style sequence at the end with a showdown against Belzoni, double crossing and ambushing a Nazi, but he still gets away in a sense. There's maybe a feeling that perhaps more robust justice than a handgun will get to him eventually. Why did you choose a real historical figure like Belzoni as a culprit rather than inventing one entirely? Hi there, Editor Flex here. I just wanted to let you know that in that question there, I accidentally primed Vasim Khan and myself to use Belzoni's name when the actual character we're talking about is Otto Skorzeny. Don't really know how that managed to happen and also how neither of us caught it, but hey, there you go. Keep that in mind while you listen to this answer. Uh, okay, so so to address your first point, you're right, Belzoni, for those of you who finished the book, Belzoni does, is, the culprit, uh, is one of the culprits and he does get away with it, and that's because the real Belzoni got away with it. Uh, and the reason I chose Belzoni is one because he's an incredibly intriguing character from the Nazi regime, one who has divided opinion. Uh, many claim that he wasn't one of these butchers who were, who were in charge of um, concentration camps or who carried out these mass pogroms. That he was a fairly honourable soldier of the old school, and uh, you know he fought. As a participant in the war, he fought for his country, just as the Allies' soldiers fought for their countries. And then he had this incredibly intriguing background, where you know, as you read the book, you discover that he he uh, leapt in as an assault commando to to save Mussolini from uh, ignominy. And then he'd had this incredible these adventures after after the war. He'd gone on the run. He'd escaped justice or the justice that the Allies wanted to impose upon him. And then he'd ended up, weirdly enough, in Egypt as a main lieutenant of, um, of Nasser, the, the great Egyptian politician and, and military man. 
So for me, I thought that as a as a as a character from history, given that I was already using many aspects from reality, such as the copy of the the Divine Comedy, the Asiatic Society, and some of the other the places and artifacts that uh, Persis comes across during the the course of the novel, I felt it just fit very neatly into the overall arc of the book. Yeah, and I guess the last thing I wanted to ask about before we wrap up is that we've 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 been gifted the title of uh at least the, the provisional title of the third book in the Malabar House series, The Lost Man of uh Deradun, I believe is how that's pronounced. Can you give us the inside scoop on what we should expect for Persis's third outing? Yeah, um it's Deradun or Deradun. Uh either is acceptable. So in this in this third one, we start uh with a bang. We start with a a man being discovered in the foothills of the Himalayas in a cave, in an icy snow cave. He's been up there for a few years. He's a white chap, it turns out. And there is something on his person, a clue that sends him to Bombay. And because he's a white man, uh, the Indian government decides that they absolutely have to find out who he is. And so they they want someone to figure out for them before, uh, so that it's, it doesn't become a national embarrassment that they can't figure out uh, why this white man was murdered and dumped in this cave up in the in the Himalayas. Another political hand grenade, as uh, Seth puts it in this book. That's absolutely right. Another political hand, hand grenade. And as we go through the course of the novel, we discover how Derudun uh, fits into it and a lot of other history. I mean, my main objective with these books is obviously to showcase a good good mystery. But at the same time, I'm very conscious of the fact that I want people to be immersed in both the environment of India and to get yeah. away from your local environment if you're reading this outside of India, uh, but also to immerse you in these historical nuggets. And each of these books hopefully showcases a range of intriguing historical narratives that uh, Hopefully, when you finish and you put the book down, you say to yourself, well, that was not just a good crime read, but I really learned some things. I, I mentioned I read Malabar, Midnight at Malabar House while I was, uh, you know, it was just after New Year's. I was visiting some friends and uh, I was staying with them and I, I basically get up each morning, read a stretch of the book and then come out. And while we're all having breakfast, I'd pose everyone uh, the riddles uh, in the dying day and my best guesses at them. <laughs> and we had this wonderful morning, like working through the uh, the the riddle about Beg and uh, the like archway for a king who was uh, who was shunted by its ill completion. And it was just, it was just such a fun group activity sitting through these like short little puzzles and none of us knowing terribly much about Indian history at all and like learning so much along, along the way. It was an absolute treat. I also loved your description of the idyllic Australian lifestyle where you just come across, you come out for a leisurely breakfast and you've got time to read a book and discuss puzzles. Goodness. <laughs> uh, am I not allowed to read books in the morning on my time off? Like what am I supposed to do with my vacation, Vasim? Absolutely not. How dare you? Yeah. No, my, my, morning, my morning usually usually starts with my missus shouting at me for something, something I've done or haven't done, or usually. Thanks once again to Vasim Khan for joining us here on Death of the Reader. If you want to hear more about his work, there are links up on the podcast, and especially go take a listen to the Red Hot Chili Riders podcast he does with Abia Mukherjee. It's a great time taking a really casual and insightful look into the world of crime fiction behind the scenes, especially over there in the UK. This is Death of the Reader. Thanks for checking us out here on the podcast. We'll see you next time.